title of the sermon this morning is Longing for Renewed Purpose. Longing for Renewed Purpose. And that ties into the title of the sermon series, this Zechariah series that we're going through. I've titled the series Longing for Renewal. That's what it's about. You know, the people of God, again, are in a place where they need a word from God. They are, they're low, they're discouraged, they're in a daunting situation of trying to rebuild Jerusalem after it's been ransacked and they've been exiled for 70 years. They need a renewal. And certainly we can relate to that, not to the extent that we live in a ransacked city or have been exiled for 70 years, but we, we live in an age of many discouragements as well. And we've addressed some of those in this sermon series so far, but there's a, there's a kind of discouragement that we haven't touched on yet that is perhaps one of the most common discouragements. And I wonder how many of you are feeling this particular discouragement this morning. It's this. It's, it's the discouragement of feeling like things that we do in life don't ultimately really count for very much. Things that we do in life don't really count for much. And I wonder if you know what I mean by that. We all want our lives to count for something big, right? You get out of bed every morning, you want something to be, to be, to be done in and through your life. You, you want to die one day and have a tombstone where people could write something on it of meaning and be like, oh, that person, I remember her, I remember him. Big things happen through their life. We want that, I think all of us, instinctively. But most of us tend to spend the vast majority of our lives entrenched in sort of just the small and the mundane things of life. Do you feel that? That can be discouraging. And I wonder if that discouragement is, is especially poignant for Christians, not because as Christians we think you know, that we're owed some, ty- some type of historic recognition, but because we believe that God has called us to live for his glory. And if we're living for the glory of God, that seems like it ought to be pretty darn significant. Yet we look around and we wonder, where is the amazing fruit? Where is this sense that God is really being glorified in my life? Where are my friends and my family members who I, I've been praying for and, and they don't know the Lord? Where's, the, where's the, 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 the massive revival in their lives? Where's the mass conversions amongst them? Where's the tremendous church growth that we read about in, in Acts chapter 2, where thousands of people are coming to Christ in a day, and, and, and the church is just flourishing in, in love for one another, and, and, and the Spirit is moving there. Where are the amazing, stirring testimonies that I'm supposed to be giving regularly as I'm sacrificing my life for Christ? Maybe all you could say this morning is, you know, I'm just a young parent with a drooling one-year-old on my hip, and the only thing I see is the laundry piling up in my hamper. I, I think I heard an amen. <laughs> I'm just a 40-hour-a-week worker who spends whatever time I have left over just trying to be with my family in a meaningful way. Maybe, maybe if I have time just trying to serve God in the church, maybe leading a Bible study or, or participating in one whenever I can. Or maybe I'm a student 
And I've got all this, this, this energy and, and, and passion to do great things in life, but I'm a student. What can I do? <laughs> yeah. Or maybe you do have the time. Maybe you do have the time and you've got the talent and you've got the passion to take this world by storm and you're ready to do it, but God hasn't given you a platform for it. You want to go and, 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 and serve the church. You want to be called into full-time ministry. You want to go overseas and preach the gospel, but no churches are calling you. No ministries are, are knocking down your door. You want to affect corporate America for Christ, but you can't even seem to keep a stable job right now. Or you want to start an evangelistic Bible study or a prayer group in your office, within your sphere of influence, but nobody ever shows up despite your constant attempts to invite them. Do you experience stuff like that? I know I can relate to that as well. We, 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 we say with, with expectant and believing hearts, God, we believe you're a big God who can do big things, who can do significant things. So why then are we surrounded by so many seemingly small things? If that question resonates with you this morning, this message is for you. As we get into Zechariah chapter 4, we are entering into the fifth night vision that Zechariah received in the early winter of 519 BC. And these visions were given to him by God in order to encourage the residents of Jerusalem, who again had just returned to rebuild a ruined city. The city of Jerusalem was in shambles. It was in rubble. They had just been in exile for 70 years in Babylon. That's where they're at. And again, they need to hear from God. And so what does God say to them? Listen, the main thing, I hope you've picked this up over the last few weeks. The main thing that God wanted them to do was to rebuild the temple. To rebuild the destroyed temple. Why was that the priority? Because that's what he wanted them to do so that they could experience what was the main thing that they needed, his presence. That's what they needed more than anything else. They needed the presence of God among them. And that's what you and I need more than anything else as well, right? We need God's presence with us. So he wants them to build the temple because that's where his presence dwells in their midst. And not only was the temple the site of God's presence, it was also the place then of their communion with him through the ministry of the priesthood, whereby the people's sins could be forgiven, prayers could be offered there. The temple was necessary for the renewal of Israel's true worship, the right worship in relationship with God. Now, I know when we talk about things like the temple, it can be a little bit hard for us as 21st century Western Christians to understand, like, what was that all about? What, what, what is the temple? What did it represent? How did it function? What was the structure of worship for ancient Israel? It, it feels foreign to us, and it, it should. It's different than what we experience. But I hope you can see that what temple worship provided for the people of Israel in the Old Testament is no different. It's no different than what we still need today. And that's this. 
It's that we need the presence of God in our lives. We need a relationship with him. We need communion with him made possible by his grace through the forgiveness of our sins. That's what we need. That's what they needed. And that communion with God, that grace of God, the forgiveness of sins, that is all realized through the ministry of a mediator. It's realized through the ministry of a priest who atones for our sins through the offerings of blood sacrifices to God on our behalf. That's where the temple, that was where that ministry was so important for them because that ministry was done by the high priest in the temple during the period of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. It's still done for us. It's done once and for all, though, for us by Jesus Christ, our great high priest, in the new covenant that was ushered in through the cross and the resurrection. Okay, so it's, the, needs are, the needs remain. We are a sinful people. We're separated from a holy God. This God comes to us. He makes his presence known among us. And he provides the mediator that we need to have our sins forgiven, to be restored in relationship to him. That's, that's God's redeeming work. That's, that's what he's all about. And the temple was the way in which he accomplished all of that in the Old Testament. So again, the main priority here in 519 BC in Israel is rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. They had begun that work. So Christine just read from us, from Haggai, the Spirit of God had stirred them up, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people, to begin that work. They had begun that work sometime earlier. However, the work had stalled out. It just kind of got stuck. They got discouraged. And we've talked about, and we'll continue to talk about today, some of the reasons why they were discouraged. But it just got stuck. So these visions were given to Zechariah in order to encourage them Keep building. Keep building. Why had the work stalled out? The people had become discouraged for the same reasons that any of us get discouraged. When we're trying to do things in our own strength. That's what was happening to them. It's what happens to us when we try to do things in our own strength to get more of God's presence in our lives. God, I'm going to try to figure out how, to, how do we get more of you. We do that on our own. That's what they were doing. And there are obstacles that get in the way when you're trying to do that. And this is what was happening to them. Obstacle number one, our fear. Obstacle number two, our sin. And obstacle number three, the overwhelming nature of all of the obstacles that lie in front of us. We're afraid. We get stuck in sin. And we just get overwhelmed by everything that lies ahead of us. It takes a lot of work to try to get to God in your own strength. It is daunting, it is exhausting, and frankly, it's impossible. Can you relate? That's where God comes and meets them in these visions of Zechariah. The first three visions of, De of Zechariah deal with that first problem, their fear. It deals with their fears. The overall message is this. The Lord is with you in your place of fear. He says, I am with you in your low places, and I will deal with the oppressors that have held you down. 
I will deal with, I will punish those who have striking fear in you. I will punish them, and I will choose again you. I will choose Jerusalem, and I will build you as a city without walls. Limitless, protected, populated, my presence. That was, that was the basic message of the first three visions. They were dealing with their fears. The fourth vision, we looked at that last week, deals with their sins. There the Lord says, I will cleanse you. I have, I have rescued you from your accuser, Satan, and I will forgive all of your iniquities in a single day, and I will restore the priesthood in this coming temple. You need the temple, you need the mediator. I will build the temple, and I will restore the mediator. That was the first four visions. Now we get to the fifth vision here in chapter 4, and here he's going to deal with all of the overwhelming obstacles in their way. God is renewing his people. In addition to a rebuilt temple, listen to this, he's also rebuilding the structure of leadership that he had provided in the Old Testament to Israel, namely three important offices, prophet, priest, and king. We've seen already that he has brought them a prophet in Zechariah. In the fourth vision, God renewed the priesthood in Joshua. Here in this next vision, God will renew the kingly office as well in a man named Zerubbabel. So let's look at the text. Zechariah chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole whole chapter. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So here's the fifth vision. I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones 
to stand by the Lord of the whole earth. All right, look up. This is probably, so far yet, the most, uh, to us, kind of cryptic and weird and foreign-sounding vision yet. All right, what the heck did we just... Lampstand, bowl, olive trees, okay, what is all this? And Zerubbabel asked the question, what is all this? And the angel answered that, and you probably were going, I still don't get it. That's okay. That's my job this morning, to help us unpack that. Let me give you a little background on Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is sort of the central uh, figure here in the vision. He was the governor of Judah under Darius. So again, Darius is the king who had sent them back from exile. You can go home, right? And they can rebuild the temple. Joshua, who we looked at last week, was the high priest Zerubbabel is the governor. He's, he's one of them, but he's sort of like the political leader that Darius the king has given authority to have, you know, sort of regional powers, uh, regional uh, governance powers over, over the area of Jerusalem and around. So that's who Zerubbabel is. If we go back to Haggai chapter 1, you can flip back a page if you want to see this. Haggai chapter 1, maybe you have to flip back two pages. Verse 1 of, of Haggai 1 says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So we have Haggai, who is a prophet to the people, just as Zechariah is. And Haggai is bringing this word to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the people are stalled out. They're, they're supposed to be building the temple, but they're saying it's not, it's not the right time, right? They're stalled out. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? In other words, stop building your own houses and build mine. That's the priority. Verse 14 chapter 1 there. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord, the Lord of hosts their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So again, as governor of the people, it was primarily Zerubbabel's job to spearhead the construction of this new temple in Jerusalem. We saw that it began here in Haggai. The work had began, but it was stalled out for lots of different reasons, both social reasons, political reasons, economic reasons. So this vision comes now through Zechariah to Zerubbabel again to say, get back to it. Just as the previous vision last week was meant to be an encouragement to Joshua, the high priest, by God's renewal of his charge and ability to lead the people spiritually. This vision is intended to be an encouragement to Zerubbabel, the governor, to renew his ability to lead the people in his kingly functions. Specifically, he is being told here that he will be able, by God's power, to complete the building of the temple. That's what this vision is meant to convey. So what's with all the symbolism? Let's look at that in detail. Go back there to Zechariah 4. The key to understanding this vision is, is understanding its structure. You've got these two bookends in the passage. 
You got verses 1 to 5, and you got roughly verses 10 to 14 on the other end that sort of uh, describe the vision, this lampstand and the olive trees, right? And then you have in the middle, verses 6 to 10, a specific word of encouragement to Zerubbabel. So let's begin with the vision itself, and then we'll end by going back and talking about those words of encouragement to Zerubbabel, the governor. You've got a picture here of a golden lampstand with seven lights. And again, it has a bowl on top of it containing oil. And then there are these pipes, there are these channels that come from the bowl that go out to light each of the, the seven lamps that are on this big candlestick, if you will. That's what a lampstand looks like. Because the lampstand was made of gold, it appears to be symbolic of the seven-branched menorah that was in the original temple, Solomon's temple, the one that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So if you've seen a menorah, maybe you have Jewish friends, and at Hanukkah time, they put up their menorah, right? That's what this thing looks like. It's this lampstand with these seven branches and these seven lights. That's what it was. But again, it's made out of gold, probably to look like the one that was in the original temple. One difference, though, big difference, is the one that was in the original temple did not have a bowl on top of it, and it didn't have these olive trees on either side of it. In this vision, we see that here. Why? Because the bowl on top is full of oil, and these pipes are continually feeding the lamps full of oil, and you've got these olive trees which produce the oil that are next to it that are continually feeding the bowl. So you've got this picture of a lampstand with an unending supply of oil. It's a heavenly supply. God is supplying the oil. It will not run out. That's the idea here. What we have here is another picture of the presence of God among his people. The lampstand doesn't just represent the temple or the dwelling place of God's presence. It also represents the people themselves, the elect people of God. First Israel and later us, the church. There's many references in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that make this pretty clear. Isaiah wrote of Israel, you know this passage probably, Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." He also wrote, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. This is a picture of God's people. So this idea of your lights are shining here and it's being supplied by my unending supply of oil. I am keeping your light shining. That's what he's saying to the people here. And this goes into the New Testament as well. Jesus referred to you and me and his disciples as the light of the world, right? Matthew chapter 5. He told them, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He also said, keep your lamps burning. In Revelation 1, we have the New Testament equivalent of this vision in Zechariah. 
Revelation 1 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. So John in Revelation 1 is also getting a vision and there's these lampstands. He says, they're the seven churches. So it's clear that what the lampstand represents is God's people lighted by his glory. It's also clear that the oil in this vision represents God's spirit. Oil is often used as a symbol of anointing. So again, you have this pervasive influence and the power of the spirit as he is supplied in abundant measure to the people of God. So to simplify this, here we see the blending of the temple of God represented by the gold menorah and the people of God represented by the lights as the dwelling place of God's presence, which is kept burning brightly by the unending supply of God's spirit. Does that make sense? It's a pretty awesome picture. It's a pretty awesome picture. It's a glimpse into their future. And it's meant to be a motivating and encouraging picture, right? I'm with you. This light ain't going out. Keep building, right? I will supply. I will supply. I will supply. That's the picture here. It's meant to be really encouraging. But again, why is that so needed? Why is this especially needed now? This is where I think the application is good, and I, and I hope you, this applies to you this morning. As encouraging as this vision was meant to be, it could have easily and probably was still received with a high measure of discouragement. Zerubbabel and Zechariah and Joshua and all the people could hear this, and they may have still yet been thinking, that sounds great, God. That sounds amazing. That sounds cool. But why isn't it happening? right? The, 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 the glory, the us shining, the supply. Why isn't it happening? Where's the evidence of this great work? We don't see it right now. This temple is stalled. This city is in ruins. We're discouraged. To contextualize that for us, it would be as if God were to give us a similar glimpse here at Edgewater. If God were to give us a, a vision here and, 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 and we'd see this light bright, brightly burning in our city, the glory radiating out of this place, the pews are filled up, the resources are, are, are abundantly available, there are people coming to Christ all the time, being cared for, finding community here. We are, we're doing charitable work that is amply clothing and feeding and supporting those in need. Everything is cranking full throttle. What if we got a vision like that from God? And yet we look around today and go, where is it? Where is it? And we get discouraged. That's where the vision now turns to Zerubbabel. God is giving him specific encouragement about the completion of the temple. And these are the, these are the key verses here that I, I want us to focus on for just a minute. Look again at verse 6. What does God say to Zerubbabel? He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, 
nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I know this is daunting. I know I've asked you to work. I know you've got this big thing in front of you. Listen, you're not responsible to make it happen. You're responsible to get up, pick up your hammer, go out and do the work. But you're not responsible for the result. It won't come about by you working hard enough, by your own power, by your own strength. This is a work that can only be accomplished by my spirit. By my spirit. So Zerubbabel, look at me. Keep going, but look at me. Wait on me. Depend on me. I'll do it. And my spirit's supply is unending. That light brightly burning will not go out. Zerubbabel might say, I don't always see that. And the Lord says, not by might, not by power. You might not see it by my spirit. It will be accomplished. It is being accomplished. But Lord, everything's broken. Look at verse 10. Whoever has despised the day of small things, is that what, what you're feeling right now? I'm despising this day of small things. I don't see it. This is discouraging. And the Lord says, you'll rejoice. Why? Because I'm doing it. And I will do it. I've said I'll do it. And when it's done, you'll see it. And you'll rejoice. This, this vision of Zechariah 4 not only gave Zerubbabel hope and encouragement of a finished temple, but it was meant to give the whole people a sense of that same hope and encouragement. God is working. God is with us. This is hard. This is difficult. God is still with us. And it's meant to give us the same encouragement today. It's given to also give us a glimpse forward for them. For us, it's a glimpse backward to a greater day in Jesus. Look back again at verses 11 to 14. I'm going to read these again. And I want you to be seeing how this points forward to Jesus. Verse 11 Zechariah says, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left side of the lampstand? The second time he had to ask, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? Now notice the second time he asks, he's, 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 he's actually giving us more detail about what he's seeing. It's not just that the trees are supplying oil, right? But it's that there are branches two specific branches from that tree that are supplying the oil in this instance. And he's asking, who are these two branches? And the angel of the Lord said, do you not know what these are? I said, no. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. These two anointed ones in this moment 
are Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the governor, the king, if you will, right? In this moment, God is using these two agents, these two offices, these two ministers in accomplishing the work that God had for the people here. But again, remember what I said earlier. God is restoring the offices of the Old Testament. So Zerubbabel, excuse me, Zechariah is standing there and he's seeing these two olive branches and you've got Zechariah the prophet, Joshua the priest, Zerubbabel the kingly figure. And it points us forward to the completion when all of those offices will be combined in the ultimate coming of Christ. Jesus Christ is the prophet, priest, and king. And it's through his coming and by his spirit now empowering us that we can look upon a message like this with the same level of encouragement. God has an unending supply of power and glory. He's accomplishing his work through his people because the prophet, priest, and king are present with us. And God is present with us. Isn't that the way of God? Right? This looks small. Doesn't look like much. Isn't that the way of God? The proof is in the first coming of Christ when the powerful purposes of God, the powerful purposes of God, were accomplished through the birth of a lowly baby in a lowly stable through a lowly teenage girl in the lowly town of Bethlehem. The biggest work of God's presence with his people, God with us, comes about through the small work of the birth of our Savior. And his work as prophet, priest, and king culminated in his death, his death on a lowly and ignominious cross. And on that day, those who were looking on would think, this is small. This is insignificant. And yet in that day of seemingly small things, God gave us reason to look upon that cross with cries of grace, grace to it. Do you remember when he says to Zerubbabel here that you'll complete this work and, and, and this mountain will be moved and the people will say grace, grace to it? That was looking forward to the completion of the temple. In Jesus Christ, we see the temple of God. Move the biggest mountain that could be moved. Death, sin, and in that small place, the people of God who see it rejoice and say grace. Grace to it. His disciples couldn't see it yet, but in three short days, they would understand. They would rejoice as their fears and their sin and every obstacle that stood in their way will have been removed forever in resurrection power. Here's the point. God had a purpose for a temple. 
the Jews of Zechariah's day could, couldn't see it all, right? What they could see just seemed so paltry to them. And so God came to them with a word of promise. Take courage. You're building more than you see. The heavens and the earth and the sea and the land and all of the treasures belong to the Lord God. And he says, I will take the fruit of this little labor of yours and I'll make it glorious beyond measure. No matter how trivial and paltry it might seem to you now, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. There's a principle here that applies to you and me. God takes small and perfect things and he builds them into a habitation for his glory. How we should take courage in our little, our little spheres of influence, right? How we should take courage. What more appropriate word could God have said to Mary as Jesus was growing up? Take courage, young mother. You build more than you see. And so it is with each and every one of us. Nothing is trifle. Nothing is too small if you do it in the name of God and he will shake heaven and earth to fill your labor with splendor when our labor is empowered and dependent, not on our strength, but on his spirit. Take courage. You build more than you see. You know, I, I can't exactly say how this applies to each and every one of you in every circumstance that you find yourself in this morning, right? Young parent, just doing your best to sling a two-year-old on your hip, right? That's where you're at. Work a day, 40-hour week, grinding it out, taking whatever time you have to, to try to devote it to good things. You know, wherever you're at, I, I can't say exactly how God is going to, to use all of that labor. All I can say is this. Depend on his spirit, and he will, because you're building more than you see. You're the people of God. Your, your wick is lit, your light is shining. God is doing something through his people. He's glorifying himself in the world. And for some of us, it's going to be done in big ways that we will see one day. For some of us, it won't. It won't. But collectively, as the people of God, we're the light of the world. And God is building more than you see. I said I don't know how to apply this to you. I encourage us to celebrate the work of God wherever and however it occurs, even if it's not seen immediately in front of you where you are. Celebrate the work of God. There will be times when there will be evident fruit. It may not be in your sphere of influence. Maybe it's in somebody else's sphere. Celebrate the work of God. Trust in the power and the sovereignty of God to produce big fruit where he sees fit. Pray for the Spirit's work in your life. Pray for the Spirit's work in your ministry and then rejoice in the God of both big things and small things because it takes both. It takes both. I was trying to think of how to apply this to my own life this week and I was reminded that, you know, I came here to Chicago 11 years ago with great expectations that God was on the verge of doing something extraordinary. 
it's too long a story to tell, but there were, there were things that were going on, things that were said, experiences that were had in, in that, whole, that whole season of, of being called here to Edgewater that were just like these blaring horns and flashing lights. God's doing something big. And I, and I thought, I get to preach the gospel week in and week out in the heart of an influential global city. I get to do this in a neighborhood where there are people from every tribe and tongue. They should be breaking down the doors to hear the good news of salvation that God has for the world. We ought to be, we ought to be bursting with people and resources, again, to care for the needy, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, influence culture. This is what, this is what I sort of had these grand visions of when I came here. And yet, 11 years in, I can say this, we've struggled every year just to fill the pews. We struggle simply to fix leaking pipes in our aging building. Right? <laughs> God, this seems kind of small sometimes. I told you last week that, um, that the prior week, I was, I was at a retreat. I was with a bunch of pastors on a retreat. Um, and I, I want to share something with you that happened there because it was, it was really, really neat, and it spoke to this little conundrum in my own heart about big things and small things. Uh, the, the church that was really hosting this retreat was, a, was the only church there that was, that was kind of a large church, and they have a kind of a robust internship program to train up pastors. And so the pastor calls up his interns to stand up in front of us. He says, line up by age. Uh, and these guys all line up, and they're all in their 20s and 30s, except there's this one guy on the end who was in his 60s. And that was the point. He wanted us to like see like, oh, this guy really stands out, right? What's this, what's this guy in his 60s doing up here as an intern to become a pastor? So he invites the guy up to introduce himself. And it turns out this guy had retired as a colonel in the army and an astronaut at NASA. This man was the head astronaut for NASA for years. His name was... Patrick Forrester, Colonel Patrick Forrester, he's been on the space shuttle three times. He's done five spacewalks, like where you get in the spacesuit and you walk outside and you work on stuff. Five times. This is probably the most impressive person I think I've ever seen or met in my life, right? And so he starts to tell us about all these experiences that he's had flying in space, Walking in space, right? He's seen big things. He's seen the earth from outside of the earth. And he's telling us about what he sees and how it doesn't compare to any photo that you've ever seen. This guy's seen big things. But at the end of him sharing all this cool stuff with us and making us all feel like he was the coolest guy in the room, he said this. And he said this, by the way, to a, a room with about 115 pastors in it, each of us primarily serving churches of, of about 50 to 150 people, small churches. And he said this, he said, I've had the privilege of doing and seeing things that most human beings will never experience. And we said, yes, you have. And he said, but I have to tell you, there is no greater privilege for me than sitting here in the presence of pastors who are doing actually the greatest work imaginable in the cosmos. <laughs> we were like, wait, what? 
And I remember turning to my friend, Pastor Nathan Carter, who was sitting next to me, and I said, did he just say that doing Christian ministry and being pastor, a pastor is more important and exciting than being an astronaut? And Nathan goes, yeah. In other words, what this, past, what this astronaut was saying to a room full of us pastors of small, insignificant churches that don't often see the bigness of God, he said, take courage work and don't be afraid because you build more than you see all you see is paltry things this is god's message here to the people of israel all you see is a paltry temple but god promises to take your work fill it with his glory empower it with his spirit and make your labors worth a million times more than you ever imagined and one day, we'll see that. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. So Father, help us to believe what's true about who you are and what you promised. And help us to believe what's true about who we are in you Lord, I, I know that the point of this isn't to say, um, look at all of us uh, really special, important people now. The point is to say, no, we're insignificant people, but we have a, we have a powerful God. We serve a God who is in control of the universe. We serve a God who is accomplishing his purposes. And you've called each and every one of us to some aspect of the project. To build the kingdom. Even as you're the one who builds it, you empower us to play a significant part in your economy, Lord, in doing the things that you've set in front of us. So help us, Lord, to do the things in front of us not with discouragement, not with downcast eyes, but with steadfast resolve that, God, we're building more than we see because you're building something utter significance. So Lord, I pray that you just uphold my brothers and sisters this week with that knowledge. You're with us not by might, not by power, by your spirit. Help us to live in light of that reality, Lord. And thank you, God, for being a God of small things because that's where you meet us, right where we're at. That's what we needed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.